Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Thursday, October 6th, 2022 is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all the things there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and every now and again, what kind of pots you can find in the dispensaries in the city. So much more, including columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky and so much more. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help the show, it's really easy. Just go to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Sergio Mims R.I.P. And here's why. I got bad news. A dear friend of mine and a very, very, very dear friend of the show, the great Sergio Mims, passed, I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before. I heard about it yesterday. Uh, Sergio was on this show countless times. I thought I would, before I did the show, I never got around to looking up the exact number. But let me tell you, folks, it was he was a monthly guest for the longest time. Uh, until he got sick. Uh, and uh, so I know longtime listeners know who Sergio is, but just in case somebody's listening to this for the first time, uh, Sergio Mims uh, was the co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival. And it's appropriate, I'm going to have the conversation I'm about to have uh, with the great Joe Winston, uh, because Sergio was a big fan of Joe Winston's movie. Joe should know that. Uh, so he was the co-director of the Black Harvest Film Festival. He's definitely one of the smartest men I know. A uh, very like def- wide range of knowledge in Sergio's brain. I mean, the the three things that he knew the most. I mean, well, the two things he knew the most were music and movies. Uh, he was just uh, he absorbed movies, and he had this incredible ability to remember uh, like the details of movies that I had long forgotten. And then I would always make the mistake, as I many times do, uh, would. <laughs> try to correct Sergio and invariably I would be wrong and he would be right and it was all good natured and good fun um but he also loved music classical music he had a show for many years at the University of Chicago's radio station that's how I met him I had a briefly with a dear another dear friend of mine uh Devin Thompson had a show uh on HPK and Sergio was the show before me uh, he was very helpful us getting started uh, so, of course, when I got access to a radio show and a podcast, uh, I, I invited Sergio back. He loved talking politics, as you know, and he loved making the most audacious predictions that were invariably as wrong as my corrections of his movie uh, <laughs> mistakes, which weren't really mistakes. Uh, and uh, my favorite, the funniest, the most extreme was that he predicted that Joe Biden would defeat Donald Trump in the state of Utah. It was like some obscure prediction that only Sergio would make. As soon as he said it, I knew it was never going to happen. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't care. (laughs) He just stuck to it for as long as he could. Uh, and we're still teasing about it, Monroe Anderson and I, um, by chance, last night I went and saw um, Punch Nine, the great documentary about Harold Washington uh, and his struggles with racism in the city of Chicago. Uh, Sergio had seen the movie about, I want to say two months ago, I've lost track of time, and had been urging me, Ben, you've got to see this movie. You've got to see this movie. And, we, and then we were going to have a discussion about the movie because one thing about Sergio, he loves Chicago politics as well, born and raised in the city of Chicago, went to Kenwood High School, lifelong Hyde Parker. Uh, Harold Washington was a Hyde Parker at the end of his life anyway. Uh, and um, so we were ready to go. We were going to have a just great discussion about the, the movie. Sergio and I were the same age. So we lived through it together in a, in a, in a way, you know. Uh, we shared many of the same memories of things that we witnessed 
uh, as we were growing up. But uh, unfortunately, he uh, died. And so I will never get that opportunity to have a conversation with him um, about this particular movie. Uh, so I'm very disappointed about that. But uh, Sergio, uh, God bless you. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being such a good friend. All right. Uh, let me try to transition out of that and uh, introduce my guest, the aforementioned Mr. Joe Winston, director of Punch Nine, which I think is an extraordinary movie. I can't say this enough, ladies and gentlemen. Run, don't walk to see it. It's absolutely essential if you want to understand the racism that's at the core, the fear and the hatred that's at the core of so much of Chicago politics to this day. And uh, so, Joe Winston, thank you for being on the show and thank you for making such a great flick. Excellent movie. Ben, thanks so much for having me. And of course, I'm a longtime reader and listener. Uh, and uh, did you know Sergio before we get started? Just It's surprising in a way that I didn't because I was a Hyde Parker for the first 30 years of my life, you know, born or raised in Chicago and still live here. And I went to Kenwood. But um, so I think only the age difference could account for why we didn't know each other. Yeah, I think uh, Sergio was class of, I think he was class of 73 as in 1973. Uh, and that was around the time that Karen Lewis, the great Karen Lewis, went there as well. Uh, all right. So um, before we uh, get into the details of Punch Nine uh, and how you, um, your journey to making this movie, uh, Joe, just let's get some essentials out of the way up front. Tell folks how they can see it. Uh, people who are listening to this show as it drops how they can see the great punch nine go ahead thank you yes uh we don't have a home on streaming or broadcast yet so currently the only way to see the movie punch nine for harold washington is in, in movie theaters amc is our partner in bringing the movie to 15 cities across the country including of course chicago it's playing at three amc movie theaters here river east 21 new city and ford city beginning this friday october 7th the day after we're speaking about this and it will run through Thursday, October 13th. All right, folks, no excuse. Run, don't walk uh, to see this movie. Uh, all right, Joe, you mentioned that you're from Chicago. Uh, you went to Kenwood High School. You're Hyde Parker. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your connection uh, to Harold Washington? Not necessarily a personal connection, but just sort of how do you uh, became aware of him uh, and the impact that he had on your uh, your young brain uh, when you first encountered him. Sure, like I said, Ben, I grew up in Hyde Park and I was a junior at Kenwood when in 1983, when Harold was first elected mayor. And he was a very familiar figure in the neighborhood. We would see him all the time. He lived at the uh, you know apartment building just a few blocks from the school. Uh, some parents of friends of mine went to work for his administration. I even shot a little bit of film of him, which my kids and I have been trying to dig out from my archives of Super 8 movie film. And um, so I knew a couple of things. I was not from a very political family. I was from a University of Chicago math and science family. But I just thought Harold was badass and really cool. And the racism of the campaign was, of course, extremely obvious to me. I wrote about it for the newspaper at Kenwood, The Kaleidoscope something making fun of Bernie Epton, Harold's white opponent. I'm sure we'll get to that. And, you know, Harold, he impressed me like he impressed a lot of people. You know, he was just a magnetic, electric figure. And that's what I understood best, that and the, the racism of his opposition when he was young. But years later, when Obama became president, you know, and I was embarked on a film career, is when I became galvanized to make a movie about Harold Washington because I hadn't seen any that I really liked. And the white backlash to the Obama presidency, to me, was something I absolutely expected. I was like, of course, don't you remember Harold Washington and what happened to him? Yeah, and uh, oh, I uh, white backlash, I see it going on to all people, uh, J.B. Pritzker right now in this current campaign season with ads that could have just been lifted from the 1983 campaign, Bernie Epton campaign, about scaring people, crime will be rampant in the streets uh, if you elect, well, J.B. Pritzker or, in, in back in the day, Harold Washington. You mentioned something, he was badass and cool. Uh, and I had a smile when you said that because I had a very same reaction uh, when I uh, first met Harold Washington, I first became aware of Harold Washington, which was a few years before he ran for mayor. Uh, talk a little bit about that, the char charisma of Harold Washington uh, as a, um, uh, it affected you back then. 
Sure. I mean, I, I just, you know, this is one of the things even Harold's enemies would admit about him is that he had extraordinary eloquence and he was funny. And I think we have some sort of clips that indicate that. Um, maybe it would be a good time to play one of them. What the left is offering America, America's poor, the minorities, is that you're going to be on welfare all of your life. Let's get one thing clear. You're not about to perpetuate the canard that the highest number in this country of people on welfare are black. That's not true oh, at all. Wait no, a minute, no, no, wait, no, wait, wait. Right. Reporters always have to carry around their dictionary to figure out, what did he, did he say? What was that word? It is the recalcitrance, almost conspiratorial, oh, in nature of American manufacturing industry. And I remember the one that really got him was anti-diluvian. Clearly, we need a revision of the building and housing codes. They're anti-diluvian. What the heck is an anti-diluvian? No, anti-diluvian. <laughs> Before the flood. I had to look it up, uh, Joe Winston, when he said it. I'm like, anti-diluvian? Then I had to figure out how to spell it. You know, this guy just say it. It's not like today where you can just type it in your iPhone, the iPhone will correct it. I'm like, a young me is like, what? Just trying to figure out how to spell it. And then various really smart people that I met go, you don't know what anti-diluvian means? Have you not read John Milton? I'm like, well, sorry, man. Would that, you explain maybe uh, I should maybe put that clip into a bit of context. This is a clip from Punch Nine, but that was Harold Washington back in 1981 as a U.S. congressman appearing on Cup's show from the Great Earth. Cupsnet had a local TV show, and Harold was there as a congressman to debate a guy named Richard Vigory, who listeners of your show may have heard of because he was a, a real he was a conservative activist and a, a pioneer of. I think direct mail campaigns that led to a lot of conservative politics and what followed in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And, and Vigory had come out with a book and Harold was there to debate him on TV. And Cupson had just let them go at it. I mean, it's an hour long show, I think. And then uh, Harold just demolished the guy. It was a real pleasure to hear. And the female voice that interjects there is the great Jackie Grimshaw, who was a close confidant of Harold Washington's. She worked in his campaign, served in his administration, is still active in the city. Yeah. Um, so, all right. You thought he was cool when you first heard him. And uh, you thought he was badass when you first heard him. Chicago likes to think of itself as a cool, badass city. Chicagoans like to think of themselves as a cool, badass city. What I'm about to say reflects my naivete. Uh, and I openly admit this and I will admit it for the rest of my life. I thought Chicago would welcome Harold Washington with open arms. I thought this was the coolest uh, mayoral candidate I've ever seen. And uh, he is uh, a real Chicagoan. He comes from the South side of Chicago, went to Chicago Public High School, born at Cook County Hospital. I thought he would be welcomed. As, as soon as he won that primary, we'll get into that uh, in a little bit. But there was an immediate backlash to him uh when you were a kid back in the day at kenwood did that backlash catch you that white backlash catch you by surprise it, it caught me by surprise i was i was not expecting such an immediate and passionate and hate-filled backlash to this guy i thought was the world's coolest guy sure but i mean again i was young right and naive at the time but um you know, being a Hyde Parker, I wasn't used to hearing kind of that overt racism and the, the campaign Epton before it's too late, referring to Harold's white Republican opponent, someone who would normally have been just there to appear in a couple debates and get 5% of the vote. Uh, I was shocked by that. Everybody knew what that meant. You know, if it called a dog whistle, I suppose it was completely clear. And actually, I remembered it. At the time, I thought the ad only ran once, but when I went back to do my research for the film, I saw it, th that slogan was used over and over and over again. Before it's too late, yes. Uh, and then they try to argue that it wasn't uh, <laughs> what, what everybody uh, thought it was and realized it was. All right, before he got to Epton, he had to get past, uh, we had, in those days, we had primary system. So you had a Democratic primary and a Republican primary, and the winners of those primaries faced off in a general election. As Joe pointed out, historically, uh, the Republican got trounced because Chicago is a Democratic city. Uh, so it was sort of a joke. Nobody paid attention to it. So round one, uh, 
was uh, Harold Washington versus incumbent mayor Jane Byrne, uh, and uh, then Cook County State's Attorney Richard M. Daly, who later became mayor. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, and uh, as your as your um, movie really points out, uh, nobody uh, like in a position of the media or so-called experts felt Harold could win. Uh, and as your movie uh, also points out, it was the debates uh, that um, really uh, put Harold uh, at the top. Uh, so why don't we just start off by play a clip of the debate. Uh, Chris, play debate, and then Joe and I will discuss. Sure, and this is Harold versus Jane Byrne and Richard Daly in a three-way debate. They're talking about- I took Harold seriously from the beginning, but it wasn't clear to me that he actually could pull it off until after this series of debates. The race to City Hall, featuring incumbent Jane Byrne and challengers Richard Daly and Harold Washington. The candidates are in place. About 2,200 persons have gathered here. Last year, there were some 2,817 cases before the Office of Professional Standards complaining of excessive or deadly police force. What would you do as mayor to diminish those complaints or close this credibility gap? Mayor Burke. I believe that the members of the police board, chaired by Reverend Wilbur Daniels, really do take that job very seriously. And I certainly believe, I certainly believe that the police department works on that problem day in and day out. I think like anything else, there must be improvement and there is nothing wrong with improvement in the Office of Professional Standards. The precise question is what would I do to improve the Office of Professional Standards? When I answer it, I'll be the only one who answered the question. The, uh, the Office of Professional Standards was arrived at after a long and torturous situation in this city in which members, not all, but members of the Chicago Police Department consistently refused to be adequate and professional in their handling of Hispanic black people. It's just that simple. <laughs> Jane Byrne and Richard Daly hadn't prepared for Harold Washington. They didn't think that he mattered. Is there anyone who does not know that Chicago's professional police are now Jane Burns' political police? <laughs> Our chief cop, Mr. Brezak, unfortunately at the behest of this mayor, as a minion of this mayor, as a subaltern of this mayor, the day I walk into that office, Mr. Brezak will go. performed so magnificently in that debate that the next day there was a sea of blue buttons. You may have recognized that voice, uh, faithful listeners. Uh, that was a very young Monroe Anderson at the debate. Uh, <laughs> Monroe is uh, older than me. He still looks like he's in his 50s somewhere. But back then in the 80s, Monroe Anderson looked like he was 15. Uh, he was working for the Chicago Tribune as a reporter. Uh, and uh, if nothing else, uh, Harold Washington's position in the race forced uh, <laughs> the powers that be in the media world to put a black guy on the uh, debate stage as a moderator. And that probably never would occur to them in a million freaking years. Wait a minute, black people live in the city of Chicago? Uh, and uh, so Monroe uh, was elevated to that moment and he came through, I thought, uh, that's my guy, Monroe Anderson, with a great question, which of course, uh, Daly and Byrne uh, ducked and dodged uh, and avoided. Uh, and Harold Washington uh, hit it uh, head on Joe Winston, hit it head on. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. And you might have heard um, David Axelrod, who was Monroe's colleague at the Tribune at the time. And I think he was in charge of election coverage. Monroe and I talked about that when we, when we interviewed him. But yeah, I mean, this is such a clear example of what made Harold such a great candidate. Besides the fact that he used the word subaltern, which I love <laughs> and had to look up myself. I mean, you know, he had this 
really winning combination for me of the kind of populist appeal of the common man with this fierce intellectual precision. And of course, this was a, a good topic for him, right? Because this was a, a painful issue for the public that remains today, right? The abuse of so many people at the hands of police officers that Harold was prepared to take head on and his opponents were not. And he was, you know, he used that to his advantage. Yeah. And uh, it, this was very much a very, I mean, it's still an, a real live issue in Chicago, but back then, this is when uh, John Burge and his minions, to quote Harold, were, uh, were torturing suspects. This was at that time. So it was like, like live, very much a live issue. And now and hearing that, Joe, um, I realize how naive I was back then. Because when you hear that direct rhetoric, I mean, that direct uh, response to uh, the question that the others had ducked and dodged, they ducked and dodged it because they understood uh, how uh, potent and powerful and volatile this issue was. No matter what you did, someone would be upset and uh, you would, so what you do is you avoid the question and you avoid the issue and you just bury it under the, the carpet as we've done for years in Chicago. Harold confronted it directly. He was unapologetically a black man speaking up for the black community while running citywide. And when I listened to that and just imagine the impact it had on people, now I realize how naive I was to think that just because I was like this liberal white guy from Evanston, not everybody in the city of Chicago was that way. Correct, Joe? Yeah, this is the thing. You know, we've had some opportunities at film festivals and such to play this movie in other cities as well. And really, Punch Nine speaks to a nationwide audience. And that the thing that made Harold Washington and that moment in Chicago so significant is that Harold was not about to just put a black face on the existing system. It was not just a matter of convincing white voters to vote for a different candidate. Harold carried a million black people along with him whose lives he was intent on improving. Harold was there to make real change and that is what those were the stakes were so high. And I think everybody, his supporters and his opponents recognize this. All right, so there's uh, the jubilation that follows and it's in the movie. Uh, I'm not giving anything away, ladies and gentlemen. This is history, so some people are, don't give away the secrets of the movie. No, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it's like saying who won the Civil War if you see Lincoln, all right? Uh, and uh, so uh, Harold was victorious in that three-way primary. There was just a tremendous sense of jubilation among Harold Washington supporters. Uh, in your movie, it really captures that, uh, like a feeling like we've done it. And if you think about all the trials and tribulations uh, that black uh, independents have had in the city of Chicago leading up to that moment in 1983, you can appreciate the jubilation. Uh, going back to Dick Gregory marching against uh, Mayor Daley in 1968, go way back beyond that. Richard Newhouse on the stage, former state senator, ran for mayor in 1975. All these great moments in Chicago history. Then there's the shock that, wait a minute, this is not over yet. You still got to clear that hurdle uh, in uh, of the general election against this Republican, a former state rep from Hyde Park. So let's just point this out. He too was from Hyde Park, Bernie Epton, uh, who was what in those days would be called a moderate Republican. That animal existed back in 1983. Uh, Joe, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Bernie Epton as a character uh, in this story? Bernie Epton is a fascinating figure, and in fact, you could probably make a whole movie just about him. And we were fortunate enough to speak not only with his scheduler, who I don't think had ever given an interview to the press before about the inner workings of his campaign, but also to Jeff Epton, Bernie's son, who's pretty different from him politically. I think he was a socialist city council member in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, and famously went on radio saying he wouldn't vote for his father in 1983, which led to some very cold Thanksgivings, I'm sure, over there at the Epton household. But um, yeah, Bernie and Harold were friends. They served together in the Illinois legislature at a time when there was some uh, unusual rule that's different today that you had to have Democrats and Republicans in serving the same district, I think. And so it's just hard to reconcile, right? Uh, even when his family talks about it, the raw racism of the Epton campaign with the history of the man himself, who was who was politically quite liberal until, I mean, my personal theory is just the old power corrupts adage that Epton seemed to change when he really thought he could be mayor of the city of Chicago. But we'll never know because he died a month after Harold Washington did. 
Yeah, he died in uh, 1987. He died after Harold? I, I always forget. It was somehow in my mind, I always have it reversed. Uh, one of the the most moving parts of that movie, uh, of Punch Nine, is when Jeff Epton is recollecting uh, the campaign, and he, he breaks down because uh, this is a man, again, of idealism, a, a socialist, democratic socialist, I should say, uh, lefty his whole life, uh, and to realize that his family name is forever linked with, as he, I think he called it white supremacy, uh, is deeply painful for him still after all these years. Uh, yeah, and I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, overnight, and the movie shows this again, there was an outpouring of support uh, for Epton by white Chicago voters. And uh, they began packing Epton's campaign headquarters, signing up as volunteers, uh, police officers in particular, which kind of illustrated the point that Harold Washington was making a little while ago, uh, signed up as volunteers. And um, uh, I think it got to Epton. You know, they started chanting his name. And I think he really believed that they, li they liked him as opposed to just he was a white tool that they could use. I think he actually believed the cheers. He, he, he didn't see the irony of it all. Uh, do you think there's any possibility? Uh, I know this is a bizarre question, but I've thought about this a lot. Like if Bernie Epton had just said, no, guys, Harawash is my friend. He's not going to be the end of the city. Uh, I don't want your vile, racist uh, adulation. Uh, we, we were friends, we served together, all the things you just said. Had Epton declared that, do you think he would have gotten as many votes as he did? Uh, I know it would have been better for the city of Chicago, uh, but are, do you think it's possible uh, that he could have just like run a respectable campaign? Or is it just preordained in Chicago, like the racism is just going to come out? Well, certainly at that moment in 1983, uh, Bernie Epton had the tiger by the tail, right? And uh, I mean, when you hear his rallies, one of the fascinating things about them is that he never talks about what he would actually do as mayor. Like there's zero ideas or policy in there. He just, it's just looking at him is enough. Actually, Monroe told me a funny story. There's so much material we gathered that couldn't make it into a hour and 40 minute long movie. But Monroe said that some voters approached him and said, yeah, I'm going to vote for that Epstein guy. Like they didn't, they couldn't even remember his name. They just knew he was white and that's all they cared about. Yeah. And you can see that from the images and sound from his rallies. He was sort of a symbol or a stand-in. Another piece we didn't get to include in the movie that I can share with you is uh, a couple of Harold's people were telling us that Epton would call the Washington campaign, would call Harold personally, I think, every night after the campaign and apologize for what had happened that day. So he was clearly quite conflicted about it. It's just all very odd, and it gets back to the whole draw of the power, right? That the fact that he clearly was seduced by the prospect of becoming mayor. Yeah, I'm just a brief aside. I had an interview with Bernie Epton uh, after the 83 election. I went to his law office, and I remember the interview. I was doing a story about Republican, the Republican Party in Chicago, and he was still very bitter about the election. And uh, in a really twisted and weird way, he is Jewish. Uh, he was blaming Jewish people. And like he said, if they if the Jews in Chicago had only uh, voted uh, for their own the way the black people voted for their own, I'd be the mayor. And I was just sitting there, Joe, and it kind of blew me away because on the other side, uh, like the 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 anti-Washington white side, they were blaming Jews because, <laughs> the, you know, the Jewish people couldn't win. You know what I'm saying? Uh, everybody was blaming the Jews because the Jewish voters went for Harold. Um, all right. Uh, so Harold was victorious over Epton, very close election, very upsetting election. Uh, it really exposed uh, this, the attitudes that white people had toward black people in the city of Chicago. And uh, then Harold uh, is sworn in as mayor and immediately uh, there's a uh, outpouring of opposition that existed for about uh, three years, two years in the Chicago City Council, the Council Wars, the 29 organized by Eddie Berdoliak and Ed Burke, Alderman Ed Burke, that Alderman Ed Burke, who's still in the City Council, Chicago. Uh, and um, so you have people from both sides uh, interviewed in the movie. Got to give you, you didn't have Burke or Verdola. I presume they just wouldn't agree to be uh, filmed. Uh, 
One of them was Joe Cotlards, who I remember actually, 35th Ward Alderman. And I was just shaking my head, Joe, when I was listening uh, to Cotlards talk. Uh, he was still, still, <laughs> still kind of uh, getting the needle in the Herald. Uh, and his point being that uh, Hare Washington was out-organized and out-maneuvered uh, and thought he could just rule uh, by proclamation when, in fact, the city council, which had never been a legitimate uh, legislative democratic body ever, uh, had the right to be so if they wanted to. They wanted to. They did. And they had 29 votes and 29 beats 21. Um, that was a very common criticism of Harold Washington from back in 1983 to 84, those for, that first year in office. Uh, to you, what's your uh, uh, reaction to that uh, criticism? Well, the thing, the great thing for us about, as filmmakers anyway, for talking to the opposition figures like Kotlars, Al Ronan, and uh, who's a lobbyist, and uh, the star witness being Dick Mel, you know, longtime alderman, was that the guys, you know, they really stuck to their guns. They had their point of view on what they thought was happening and their role in it and what it all meant. And they don't seem to change their minds or shown much in the way of regret since then. I mean, and it was, I think, incredibly valuable to hear that side of it. Like you may not ag agree with them, but it's important to hear it because these things don't go away. And of course, the council war section of the story is the one of the first that goes, you know, has people outside of Chicago or in or outside, right, going, aha, because <clears throat> pretty much the exact thing happened to Barack Obama. And now it's become tradition, right, in Congress, whenever a Democrat gets elected to simply obstruct everything they do. Yeah. So uh, do you think Harold was outmaneuvered? Well, he clearly was at first uh, with the beginning, the beginning meeting of the city council. I don't know, you know exactly what choices he may or may not have had. There's some debate about that. And if we had more people living, we could talk to. I was I was very interested in, in delving further into that, the, the sort of the strategy side of things. Right. N never mind what we think is right or wrong. Like what should new mayor Washington have done faced with the fact that he couldn't get a majority in the city council and that his opponents were locked, going to be lockstep in unity against him. Nobody had ever faced that in Chicago before. Right. I mean, <laughs> Richard Daly, Richard J. Daly, or for that matter, Richard M. Daly, you know, city councils, you know, those guys were like trained seals, right? I think as Mike Royko put it, they would just applaud anything the mayor said. If the mayor said the sun rose in the West, the council would approve an ordinance 49 to one. So it's, it's hard, you know, hi hindsight is easy, but the main thing that Harold did that was not a miscalculation, I think, was that he drew the battle lines and he fought and he never, ever, ever backed down. He compromised and made deals the way politicians do. That's what politics is, right, when there were deals to be made, which often was not the case. But he never backed down. Harold stood and fight and fought. And, you know, 20 some years later, we got to see the other strategy of compromise, give in and try to play along. And we saw how that worked. Yeah, no, Harold Washington absolutely was the complete opposite of Barack Obama <clears throat> in so many ways. Uh, you mentioned Mel. <clears throat> Let's go to Mel. I agree with you 100%. Uh, Mel's, uh, I've known Mel forever. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, we've been battling forever. Uh, he, I think at the latest, we call ourselves frenemies. Uh, <laughs> but um, I really enjoyed talking to him. He was yeah, so really great, actually. Yeah, so he's a character. Every movie needs a villain. He was only too happy to play the role of the villain. Uh, <laughs> he just loves being the villain. He loves taunting, mocking, teasing. I've been watching him do it since I moved to Chicago in the early 80s, Joe Winston. So mm -hmm. you captured him in all his melism. Uh, and uh, he's not apologizing. It's politics. You don't like it? Beat me. Uh, and then when you do get beat, when, he, when you do beat him, he still is trying to out, uh, steal it from you. So, uh, Richard Mel, at least you're honest in a weird kind of way, if you get what I'm saying. Uh, is that the role you saw him as, like, the villain that the movie needed? Well, I think that I think Eddie Verdoliak is probably the villain. And if he'd you know, given an interview, he would have been even more prominent. But even in the archive, I kind of see him as the Joker to Harold's Batman, actually. Um, so Mel is on the villain's side. Maybe he's the villain's henchman. But interestingly, Mel came around, right, once Harold had won a couple of times and had control of the city council, Mel, as he tells us, joined Harold's side. He was perfectly happy to switch sides to be with a winner. 
yeah it, okay i just want to amend that i mean it, it, yeah there was mel put it like there was no point in fighting anymore and then it was kind of a weird mel moment in the movie the quote was actually like for the good of the city no you didn't have the votes mel <laughs> don't act like there was anything prevalent <laughs> about why you did what you did it was what's the point of fighting and losing then you'd be a loser you know a loser like all the people you made fun of all those times so you know <laughs> I love how he tried to, all of a sudden, he's, uh, you know, Martin Luther King or something like that, uh, and Richard Mel. Um, but uh, yeah, Eddie Bernolia, talk a little bit about Eddie. You had, a, there's, I know he didn't appear on camera, but you, I thought, did a very good job of capturing uh, just sort of his uh, bizarre charisma. I always liken it to, uh, the, they looked at him, the, they being the white alderman of the city council, as like they're Frank Sinatra. And they were in a rat pack and it was a big rat pack. It wasn't just like four people rat pack. Uh, and there were no Sammy Davis Jr. Let's get that clear in their rat pack. There was like uh, 29 of them. They loved Eddie Rodoliak. Like he was cool to them. Uh, and I think I think he captured that. Uh, Joe, talk about Eddie Rodoliak uh, and the role he played at that time. Sure. And it's one of my great regrets that somehow the movie never reveals that his nickname was Fast Eddie and not for his track and field skills, certainly. <laughs> Yeah. But Verdolak was, I mean, he's a fascinating figure. I would love to have sat down with him. You know, he was uh, relatively young back then, right? And I think he had been, we found a clip of him, uh, you know, a galvanizing event early in our story is when Richard J. Daly dies, because that's sort of the first big crack in the machine, at least as we find it. And Eddie Verdolak was involved even in that. This is in 1975, 76, or I think 76. And he was involved in behind the scenes maneuvering, even at that time as a young city council member. I think he was part of something that was called the Coffee Rebellion, which I never completely understood because it didn't seem to be about any ideas. It just seemed to be about the idea that uh, the aldermen should have more power and Richard J. Daly should order them around less, basically. But, and Verdoliak being from the 10th Ward, right, that's that sort of long sliver of Chicago where all the steel mills, you know, had been and a few of them still were in the 1980s. You know, he was just obviously really smart and clever and really enjoyed the game of politics. He was certainly not unfamiliar with the black community. I remember when we were reporting on the South Side with, you know, kind of people who were more activists or average voters back in the day, you know, a lot of black folks liked Verdoliak. And he's, of course, his law firm still has those enormous signs up on the highways around Chicago, you know, probably lots of clients of all stripes. And but I mean, Verdoliak struck me as somebody who was just pure power it was purely about power and money that that seems very clear to those who knew him and there's nothing about his behavior that contradicted that to contradicted that and he loved the show of politics he never got tired of it and of course tellingly right once he no longer kind of like newt gingrich right who would later on revel in many of the same qualities and and scandals similar scandals uh when eddie verdoliak was no longer commanding the city council against harold he just quit entirely right he ran as some fringe fourth party candidate for mayor lost and then disappeared from politics if he if he couldn't you know have the game his way he was out yeah and uh your movie uh, dances around uh this this uh issue of politics and racism uh and it delves into that and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this i've heard this many times from uh people who uh are trying to uh explain eddie Bedoliak to me uh, and they go, Ben, you got to understand, Eddie was not a racist. Uh, Eddie was just, a, it was a power fight. And I've heard that, I heard somebody say that in your movie as well. Like, this was about power. Uh, and uh, I've never bought that line at all. I don't care personally whether Eddie Verdoak, quote unquote, racist or what that means. Just all I know is that when the moment came, and he was given an opportunity to exploit racial fears and prejudice uh, to gain, to defeat his opponent uh, and promote uh, himself. He went for it with relish uh, and then pretended he wasn't doing it. He pretended somehow or other that he was a more capable uh, overseer of Chicago government uh, than Harold. That's at that commercial, great commercial that you, you drew out of the archives uh, that an Edibadoya campaign <laughs> campaign where it showed a black hand uh, voting for, for Verdoliak on the ground said, well, he's better for the city than Harold. Uh, and then Harold said, I don't even think that's a black hand. Pretty funny man. Um, 
So what's your thoughts in general? Eddie Verdoliak racist or Eddie Verdoliak uh, exploiter of racism? That was a question that came up a lot when we talked to the political figures, you know, like uh, whether they were opponents or supporters of Harold about the council wars and the politicians, right? The voters seem to largely be motivated by fear, a sort of primal emotional fear. But the question for the politicians was, you know, how much was it a calculation about power and how much it was sincerely held bigotry? And uh, during the process of, you know, editing the movie, I came to the realization that you don't really need to have it be either or, it could be both and, because that's what racism really is, which is I think the fundamental way in which lots of white liberals misapprehended the Obama presidency and their reaction to it, is that racism is not about white people stopping impolite behavior like calling black folks the N-word. Racism is a system of power and oppression. That's what it is. And that's what Harold was fighting against. He was not just trying to make it acceptable for a black man to run Chicago. Sure, that was the start. Harold was about reforming a system of power and oppression that was keeping black people down. And that was the thing that was very threatening to people in politics. What their personal feelings were about black people, who cares, really? What they did was try to perpetuate a terrible system. Yeah, well put. Uh, and uh, all right, uh, we're coming to uh, the part of the story where Harold is the mayor and soon uh, he sort of uh, becomes the most significant figure uh, in Chicago at that time uh, and uh, just internationally known, you know, because it was such a contentious election. Uh, Council Wars was contentious. He was clearly, as you put it, uh, being attacked by white people because uh, he was uh, daring to defy the system of racism. So he became an internationally known figure. And you have a clip related to that. Why don't you talk a little bit about that before we play the clip? Go ahead. Sure. To set this up, this is an abbreviated moment from Harold's second victory rally when he is reelected as mayor of Chicago in 1987. Another hard fought battle, not quite as epic as the, his first successful election, but a real moment of triumph for Harold when he was cemented his power and he was really ready to change the city. And this is a, a famous piece of sound from Harold as he's kind of exulting in his uh, reputation. Chicago and someone would respond like a Pavlovian dog segregation but now anywhere in the world you go Israel Egypt Rome Shanghai Tokyo Nairobi Zimbabwe you know what they'll say to you Harold Washington. And I love that riff where he just starts listing cities around the world. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love the man. And then when I saw the movie last night, and I'm sure I was not alone, I'm a baby boomer watching that movie, Joe, when you played that clip or when the clip comes on, I knew where he was going with it because he did that all the time. How's Harold? You know, and <laughs> so I could just hear it before. Uh, you know, uh, it came. Um, it must have been fun on a certain uh, level, just going through all these clips of Harold. I, I've discovered, to my disappointment, that on YouTube, there's not a whole lot of clips of Harold Washington. Very disappointed when one night I was like looking for clips of Harold. There are not that many. So talk a little bit about uh, tracking down these clips, how you found them, uh, and your reaction to them when you heard them. Oh, sure, Ben. Well, the way I began this project was I went to the Museum of Broadcast Communications over on Kinsey Street. And at the time, they kept their archives of tape and even film, even though it's a TV archive, in an unheated parking garage. And it was in December. And I just sat there for day after day playing back these old three-quarter-inch pneumatic videotapes of old TV broadcasts with Harold. And that's where I saw him for you know an hour on Cup's show. I watched all four of the debates that Harold Washington, Jane Byrne, and Richard Daly held in the Democratic primary of 83. And uh, those were extraordinary. They were completely riveting. It was you know four hours of uninterrupted by commercials 
time that they had in front of, I think they were on every single network in Chicago so that anybody who turned on a TV set at the time, you know, there was no cable or anything like that, that would see it. And uh, that was kind of where I got my start. Chicago is blessed with some great archives. There's a Chicago film archive where I found a lot of really interesting material, much of it shot by a filmmaker named Bill Stamets who followed Harold around throughout campaigns and governing and got him in all sorts of interesting candid moments. And of course, you know, the TV networks and the, the film archives went on and on and on. And then we found some individuals who had collections. There was a filmmaker named and journalist named Jim Lysella, who happens to be a family friend who had raw footage from a documentary that he made that only aired a few times about the mayor's race. So it was a long process. We had over 300 hours of archival footage. I think we've never actually strung it all out end to end to find out how many. Uh, we had a whole team of people who were collecting it and it kept coming in during the editing process, which was well over a year of at least two or three edit rooms going. But that's what these historical biogra biographical films, that's kind of what it takes to make them. Somebody asked me in a screening like what it was like to like edit and figure out what to put in, what to keep out. And I, I think I said something like it was like knitting a 30 foot quilt out of one inch patches while running down the street. You know, it's complicated, but it was really fun. And Harold is an incredibly compelling figure and full of all sorts of delights. And as my editor was telling me the other day, you know, when you, when you do films about politicians, they usually say the same thing over and over again, even the good ones. And Harold seemed to have something different to say every time somebody turned on a recorder. Yeah, it's so true. I have an interview of it tucked away in my desk drawer here that I've uh, been meaning to uh, transcribe and never got around to it. An interview I did with Harold Washington on, uh, uh, it was on St. Patrick's Day. I think it was uh, 1987, I want to say, uh, St. Patrick's Day of 87. And um, I just remember blowing me away in that interview, you know, just he would be riffing. And you're right. It was like, saying things and every now and then after he was done he goes oh that's off the record <laughs> Gabby, you can't, you know, whatever uh so uh all right uh then we get to the final scene which of uh, the movie which is it's so upsetting uh to somebody like me uh and i know monroe and sergio and everybody my age feels the same way boomers uh who have to confront the reality that all this promise that finally uh, the uh, racist regimes of Chicago were defeated. They had a mayor who's fair, uh, is directly confronting what I think is the most compelling problem that Chicago faces. And that's, it's, it's for the lack of a better term, it's race relations. Okay, finally, we have a mayor who's doing that in an honest and systematic way and now has control, finally, of the city council. So he's not dealing with the, the bizarre characters like Verdoliak, Burke, and Mel anymore, uh, who are extorting him uh, in many ways for whatever they can get. And he dies in office. And it's like, I, I just like, I still can't. I mean, it's just like we're we're doomed in Chicago in some ways. You just, we're doomed. And it, it, and as soon as it happened, the split erupts between two factions of Harold Washington's coalition, but one behind Alderman Ed, uh, excuse me, uh, Tim Evans, the other one behind uh, Alderman Eugene Sawyer. And you just know, you just know at the time, Joe Winston, that it's just not going to work out well. And of course, ultimately, it didn't. Uh, Mayor Daley emerged uh, from that scrum uh, in 1989 special election and probably would still be getting elected mayor to this day if he didn't decide uh, to leave office. And I could go on and on about my opposition to Mayor Daley did. Um, your movie sort of takes the side that uh, the uh, Daley forces engineered the election of Eugene Sawyer because they thought uh, he would be easier to handle than Tim Evans. I have... That's my biggest um, disagreement with your movie. Uh, probably my only significant disagreement. Uh, so let's deal with that. Uh, do you think that's the case, that Gene Sawyer uh, was easier to control than Tim Evans? Well, certainly the white alderman thought that he would, which is why they must have favored him, right? It was white alderman who put 
uh, Eugene Sawyer into office in these proceedings at the City Hall that were surrounded by the entire block around City Hall was crammed with protesters shouting for once, usually shouting for Evans, I think. And the proceedings went on until four o'clock in the morning and they were being watched on TV live. And according to Gary Rivlin's book, Fire on the Prairie, there were 80,000 people watching at 4 a.m. as Eugene Sawyer was sworn in, sworn in as mayor to succeed Harold. So this is a moment in the story when movies being what they are and having the restrictions of length have to oversimplify. We found we had to kind of oversimplify Sawyer. We filmed, we sat down with Roderick Sawyer, you know, current city council member of the sixth ward and Eugene's son and talked about, talked with him at some length. And of course, uh, he has a much more favorable view of his father than than many, um, you know, that and Monroe, of course, worked for him. Right. And and got to see the man up close as mayor. You know, it's a, it's a painful thing. I, I don't actually I, I would hate for people to Chicagoans, especially to walk away from the idea that uh, we think there was anything really wrong with Eugene Sawyer. It just seemed like he was doomed. You know, the guy was put in a completely impossible situation. Who knows if Tim Evans would have even done any better, really, right? But um, you, you had a, a fractious coalition that was breaking apart over the sort of internal rivalries and jealousies that Harold, through his just sheer you know, size and influence of his reputation was able to contain, right? I mean, liberals are always fighting, right? Liberals can't just fall in line, damn it. Why not? Unless unless they turn into, uh, you know, <laughs> Che Guevara or something like that. Um, so who knows if anybody could have filled Harold's shoes under the circumstances, right? And any mayor who was supported by the very same white alderman who had opposed Harold all those years was doomed, right? They were tainted by the fact of who put them there. And uh, they, somebody would have had to be a political genius to escape from that cage. And uh, I think we can safely say that Eugene Sawyer was not not that, you know, he probably would have been, he probably was fine. You know, if there was some significant missteps. There was a scandal involving the Jewish community that he was involved in. One of his aides uh, said something terrible about Jews. I think it was Jewish doctors injecting babies with AIDS or something like that. The, um, the kind of pre-Trump days when that kind of scandal would actually stick to you. But uh, so, yeah, Sawyer's complicated and we did not have time to allow him that. I'm afraid, you know, Ben, I mean, this movie's not just for people in Chicago. Uh, obviously, this is our base and where the story maybe matters the most. But we really wanted to, our mission was to reach out to everyone. And that did force us to keep the story manageable, right, in, in terms of its complexity. There's so much to dig into. Every single screening I've been to, there have been people in the back, activists, you know, who used to volunteer for Harold or for one of the other campaigns who would, you know, I like to sneak into the audience and nobody knows who I am. And, 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 you know, this, these activists will somebody be pounding the seat and saying, that's not true when they hear something in the movie, you know, I mean, we look movies, I, 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 read a book if you want to learn all the facts. Okay. Movies are, are really about, you know, shaping stories and, and conveying emotion. Okay. And hopefully when people see a movie like punch nine, they'll want to learn more. And, and read some of the many great books that are out there that explore all these ins and outs of the Harold Washington story in, in much more depth, including Eugene Sawyer's role in it. By the way, were you sitting next to me at yesterday's screening? I'm just kidding. Because uh, I, yeah. I may have said, yeah, this, is, this is not the Eugene Sawyer I knew. Uh, no, I, and, and, and I just have to say this. I've had this conversation, uh, Monday morning quarterback conversations with a lot of the people that are in the movie. Conrad Worrell, may he rest in peace, uh, did an interview with him on the subject. Uh, and um, Monroe and I talk about it a lot on this show. Uh, and it's retrospect. It's clear that folks were just really caught up in that fight. There was a lot of ego on the line. There was um, a lot of uh, passion on the line. It was like people were overwhelmed by emotion. They weren't thinking logically or rationally. They weren't strategizing. They weren't thinking about uh, how what we do this night, December of 87, will play out over the course of two years. No, it's, it was a very, even guy like Mal. It, to me, Mal was just like, I just want to win. And then I want to rub it in your face. And he just, we elected a mayor. We got a new mayor. And that was just Mal being typical Mal, rubbing it. And just, I've seen him do that, uh, Joe, so many election nights. You know what I mean? Where he was victorious. 
Uh, and then, of course, when he loses, he starts, <laughs> it's a whole different thing. Oh, they cheated. Um, but um, so I hear you. I hear you. Uh, and then, Another uh, tidbit that you might not know, which also did not make the movie, is a guy named Bennett Johnson, really interesting guy that we filmed. He's in his 90s now. He was a college classmate of Harold's back in the 1940s at Roosevelt, then college. So he knew him for a really long time, and he was kind of a behind-the-scenes strategist at times. Really interesting, thoughtful guy, Bennett Johnson. Anyway, he said that uh, when Sawyer was becoming had become mayor that that bennett had some meetings with members of the business community and they all to a, to a man said to him i'm sure they were probably all men at the time uh that they were fine with sawyer they thought he was perfectly competent and they saw no need to back daily that they were perfectly happy to get behind sawyer and and have him be mayor which makes that what happened later for the you know the forces of harold washington all that much more tragic yeah, and let me just say this about that. First of all, Bennett Johnson, uh, great Evanstonian, and you can hear the interview I did with him. Uh, he's also been a guest on the show, uh, the, the legendary Bennett Johnson. Uh, and uh, yeah, so let me just say that. Man, that gets me going, because if you've ever seen uh, the Steve James movie, which you probably saw, uh, City So Real, where they have, uh, I think it was at, uh, Christy Hefner's, this, this scene really struck me. Uh, she's having a, a dinner party uh, and everybody's like all of these real smart people who are really involved in Chicago are ha discussing Chicago politics, et cetera. And this banker starts opining about the worst thing that happened to Chicago, paraphrasing, was Harold Washington. There was chaos and confusion. And uh, Dick Daly, you know, Richie Daly came in and cleaned all that up. And I'm like, that just sounds like every corporate leader I ever saw. That's your takeaway of Harold Washington? The guy finally confronts the years and years of racism. And to you, it's about people yelling at a city council meeting and you can't get a deal done really fast. So I never believe a word. Uh, I, I've heard that line, too, uh, that Bennett heard. In fact, I think Bennett may have told me that. And I didn't believe it when I said Bennett. If they didn't have any problem with Eugene Sawyer, they had a funny way of showing it come 89 because everybody, every established leader in the city of Chicago pretty much stood behind Daly to like save Chicago so that we'd never have this again. So yeah, I'm very dubious and skeptical. All right, I, but I don't want to end on a downer note. I cannot urge people to see this movie enough. Um, just a really powerful movie, Joe Winston, that you did. I know you've spent, how many years did you spend on this thing? It was years making it. I mean, it was probably seven years I mean, with everything put together, including getting it getting it out there. Wow. So, That's uh, not uncommon. It's grant-funded independent docs, though, I have to say. Yeah, no, it's not uncommon at all. And I'm really glad that you, you embarked on this. I have a vague memory of talking to you. You, you refreshed my memory uh, when you were getting started on this. Uh, and uh, so to plow through it all, spending all those hours in a cold room, watching footage that's 30 years old, uh, potentially losing your mind. I'm sure your friends and family got really tired of you telling them about Harold Washington. You would have believed. My family, uh, my wife, Laura, and my kids are very patient. What can I say? <laughs> Come home. I saw this footage from 1985. That's good, dear. Could you just take on the message? Um, so thank you very much uh, for embarking on this. And I hope uh, it plays in every theater in the country. And then it has a long I hope we cut a deal with some streaming service uh, and that uh, folks can see this and get a sense of what Chicago is all about. Uh, so Joe Winston, one more time, tell people where they can see Punch Nine right now for the next week, the week following after you, uh, this podcast drops, go ahead. All right, so Punch Nine for Harold Washington, the documentary is playing at AMC theaters in select cities, including Chicago, beginning Friday, August, uh, Friday, October 7th, and until, until Thursday, October 13th. You can find out more at punch9movie.com. Say it again, punch9movie.com. Yes, punch nine. Punch nine is because when they punch, it was the ninth number, ninth position on the ballot. So punch nine. That, that was a big thing back in those days. Joe Winston, thank you very much for coming on uh, my show. Ben, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. I also want to thank uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, sitting in for Dr. D, who's a daddy. Uh, Daddy D, uh, Chris Shiragi, great job, Chris, handling all those clips. And as I always say, Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. 
If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.